Thank you. Please have a seat. Um, thanks for that wee solo at the end there, Stephen. Um, okay, if you've got a Bible and you want to um, flip it open to page 965, Matthew chapter 1. Um, let me begin with an apology. We were meant to be going through 1 Kings tonight. Craig got us started on that uh, great series. Uh, but for various reasons, I had to suspend that. But we will return to 1 Kings. I'm not dodging it. Um, and tonight, though, I want to look at the beginning of Matthew's gospel and do a kind of intro to the gospel as a whole. Uh, and in many ways, the stuff that we have been seeing in 1 Kings is complemented by the gospel of Matthew. Um, it's my passion for us to learn how to read the gospels in their own right. And what we have a tendency to do is kind of smoosh them all together, especially with Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, but I want us to see that Matthew has a distinctive message that is different to Mark, that is different to Luke. Uh, and let me just set this up by saying what three great benefits you will get from studying the gospel of Matthew, uh, just to whet your appetite as we look at this. Firstly, Matthew will help us understand what it means to call Jesus king and to be part of the kingdom of Jesus. So the kingship of Jesus is the identity which Matthew focuses on more than any other gospel writer. The other gospels talk about it, but for Matthew, this is the thing that he hones in on. And it's a really helpful gospel, therefore, because many of us as Christians are in danger of um, treating Jesus as if he's just our buddy and our friend, uh, or even worse, as if he's our assistant, and not treating him as if he is our king. And so Matthew helps us get that aspect of Jesus' identity right. Secondly, Matthew helps us not only understand Jesus, but he helps us to understand the entire Old Testament, uh, specifically how the Old Testament story was building towards the arrival of Jesus. So this is a great gospel for showing us how the, the 3,000 years of history that are in this first chunk of our Bible are fulfilled in Jesus. So the word fulfilled is a word that Matthew uses a lot throughout this entire gospel. And thirdly and finally, um, Matthew is just a great gospel for evangelism and for teaching us how to be disciples of Jesus. The very end of the gospel, Jesus, after his resurrection, gathers the disciples to himself and he sends them out to make disciples of all the nations. What is commonly known as the Great Commission, Jesus sends them out to teach the world what he taught them. And in many ways, this gospel is the fulfillment of that commission. Matthew writes down what Jesus taught him about how to be a disciple and he teaches us what Jesus taught him. That's why the, the whole gospel is very didactic in nature. In fact, it's, it's structured around five big teaching blocks from the Lord Jesus. So this is a wonderful gospel. I hope after tonight, and um, I hope you already have read it, but I hope you will uh, read it afresh after tonight. And I want to get stuck in, and I've just built it up. And <laughs> you've seen the passage, what we're looking at. It probably looks like a massive anticlimax after what I've just said. It's a big list of names. And you may be thinking, oh, what on earth is this? And do not worry, you are not alone. But I want us to see by the end of tonight, this is a perfect link between the Old Testament and the New Testament of the Bible. 
And there's stuff that we will see here that reminds us of the greatness of a God who keeps his promises and his covenant. Let me read it. I'm going for it. All the names. Matthew 1, 1 to 17. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Ammon. Ammon, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud. Abiud, the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok, Zadok, the father of Achim, Achim, the father of Eliud, Eliud, the father of Eleazar, Eleazar, the father of Mathan, Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Thus, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Christ. Well, let's pray. I think we need God's help. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that all of it is breathed out by you and is profitable for training in righteousness, for reproof, for rebuking, for correcting. Thank you that you speak to us so clearly in your word. And Father, we ask for the help of your Holy Spirit now to understand what's going on in this list of names to see behind it your sovereign working, your great promise, and your wonderful grace as you brought about our Savior, the Lord Jesus. Help us, please, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, when I approach a passage like this in the Bible, there's two questions I'm asking. Um, Firstly, why was it so important for Matthew to begin his gospel this way. Remember, Matthew's wanting to evangelize the world and tell them about Jesus. So why did Matthew think that this was a good way to start his gospel? What is the purpose of this being here? And the second question I want to think about is, why is it important for us today? So what can we learn from this portion of Scripture? Let me tell you from the onset why this is here and what this is telling us. This genealogy, the genealogy of Jesus, authenticates Matthew's claim that Jesus is the king who has come to bless the world. 
It authenticates the claim that Jesus is the king who has come to bless the entire world. Matthew begins this way because he's determined to show his readers Jesus is the real deal, a fulfillment of of promises that God made long ago. And for his original Jewish readers, genealogies were very important ways of determining that. So your heritage and your lineage really mattered. It's kind of like, if you've ever seen Lord of the Rings, um, by the way, Tolkien is just a gold mine of preacher's illustrations. Anyway, if you've read the books or if you've seen the films, you'll know that one of the big heroes of the story is this exiled ranger called Aragorn, who is in fact this great king and um, prophesied to save Middle-earth. And the way he is authenticated in the film and the way he's authenticated in the story is that people come to realize he is descended from a long line of kings. He is a Isildur's heir. His ancestry is proof that he is the real deal. And so it is with Jesus. You see, a genealogy is so important to begin this gospel because it authenticates Jesus. It places Jesus as a real person. It places Jesus in time and space in history. Matthew doesn't begin his gospel by saying, once upon a time or long ago in a galaxy far, far away. This is not a myth. This is real history. This is not some figure that Matthew has made up. This is someone who is real flesh and blood. But the genealogy doesn't just authenticate Jesus as as a real guy. It authenticates him as the promise, the fulfillment of the promise given by God. This list of names traces the history of God's promises in the Old Testament. That's what it's doing. It's tracing a legacy of grace and fulfillment. Look at how he begins, because this is so important for understanding the entire gospel. Matthew 1, verse 1. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, if you are one of Matthew's original readers, those two names would be ringing bells in your head. Because those two names were tied with two key promises that God gave to Israel through these two individuals, through Abraham, through David, that would involve the blessing of all the nations of the world. So, let's do some page turning. Um, Hope you've got some flexible fingers. Uh, Let's go and look at the promise that God gave to uh, Abraham. 3,000 years before Christ. So turn way back in your Bible to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12 on page 13 of the church Bibles. This is the promise given to Abraham. Verse 2, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. So Abraham, 
such a key figure in the Old Testament, is given a promise that from him, from his descendants, will come a nation, a nation that will be used to bless all the nations of the earth. And that promise is so important to understand in the first half of your Bible, because it is everywhere. People are holding on to this promise, looking to how God's going to fulfill this promise. And then as the storyline of the Bible goes on, you see that that promise starts to get tied to a specific figure, God's king. And so 2,000 or so years, uh, 2,000 years or so after Abraham, God made another promise, another commitment. And this time it was to the great king David. So turn forward to 2 Samuel. This is the second big promise we see, 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7, and it is on page 311. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12, or just before that. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over, and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So there's the promises, the promise given to Abraham that his descendant would bless the nations. The promise given to David that his descendant would be a king who would establish the throne of God forever. And all those promises now are starting to find their fulfillment. Jesus, the son of Abraham, the son of David. That's why Matthew begins his gospel this way, because he's saying it's happened Those thousand years of waiting for those promises, thousands of years have finally come to fulfillment. He is here, the king who will bless the nations, who will bring bring all God's promises to fruition. And the way that Matthew structures his genealogy, if you come back to Matthew 1, the way that he structures that genealogy is done in such a way that he's showing us that God had ordered all of this carefully But the time of preparation is over and the time of fulfillment has now come. See in verse 17 at the end how he splits the the, um, genealogy into three generations of 14. Um, And if you are well versed in the Bible, you would know actually Matthew has deliberately missed out some names here. Um, We shouldn't be too worried about that. It would have been obvious to him, it would have been obvious to his original readers that rather than making a statistical point, with this genealogy in verse 17, Matthew's making a theological point. And putting it like this, he's saying that these three periods of Israel's history were planned by God. 14, 14, 14. There was an order, there was a structure, but now they are over. The promise is here, and Jesus is the king to bless all the nations. That is the big theme of Matthew's gospel. Like, you know, letters that run through a stick of rock. If you were to slice Matthew in half, that would be the theme you would see running throughout. Jesus is the king to bless all the nations. In fact, just flick with me to the very end of the gospel. It's worth seeing this. 
right at the very end, Matthew 28, you'll see that exact same theme coming right at the end of the gospel. Matthew 28 and verse 18. Famous, famous passage. Jesus said to them, this is after Jesus' resurrection, all authority and heaven on an earth has been given to me. What's that language? It's king language. I'm the son of David, the king. All authority and heaven on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations. The son of Abraham. So the gospel of Matthew is framed by this idea that Jesus is the king who has come to bless the nations. Everything in between is showing us why that is, how that's true, and what it looks like to follow this king. But back in Matthew 1, that's why he's starting the genealogy this way, to show that. But back in Matthew 1, there's something more going on here too. Because this genealogy, it authenticates who Jesus is as the fulfillment of God's promises. But it also shows us something of how God works through history. And therefore, how he will work ultimately through King Jesus in our lives today. And there's two big lessons that we can draw out from this list of names. First lesson is this. There is nothing that will hinder God's promise. There is nothing that will hinder the promises that God has given to you. Verse 2 to 6. We have the generations between Abraham and David. This is a period of history that is messed up. And it is filled with messed up people. This period of history includes the moment, um, the time, generations after Abraham, where the people of Israel, the descendants of Abraham, were slaves in Egypt. A couple of the people mentioned here, Ram and Aminadab, they were part of this generation. It was a period of history where for 400 years, the people of God were subject to mass genocide and where their children were massacred before God rescued them through his rescuer Moses. This period of history in verse 2 to 6 includes the period known as the Judges when they were, Israel was eventually rescued and brought into the land of Canaan. And they were ruled by judges. And it was some of the most twisted stuff you will read of in the Bible happened during the reign of the judges. In fact, when you read the book of Judges, you can barely read it in public because it's so horrible, the stuff that happened during that time. Verse 7 to 11. This records for us uh, the next stage in Israel's history, the generation of the kings, which we're looking at in 1 Kings. And it starts off really well. We have the great King David. But we're reminded of here in verse 6. He wasn't that great. He was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. That was the man that David killed because he committed adultery. And then Solomon started off well, but then went completely off the rails. And what followed was one of the darkest periods of Israel's history. You can read about it in 1 and 2 Kings. There's little shafts of light like we read in that passage of 2 Kings with Josiah. 
But most of these kings were wicked, evil people. And it ended up with the land being destroyed, with the temple being eradicated, with the throne of David being laid bare, and the entire people of Israel being driven out of the land and exiled off to Babylon as prisoners. And do you know how many people were around at this time? This great nation that God had promised to bless the world, do you know how many were left? Four and a half thousand. You get more people at Dens Park than were left after the massacre of Babylon. Messy history, that. But it endured. Well, what about the next stage, 12 through 16? These, these generations after the exile. What happened then? The, the people came back. They rebuilt the temple. And yet everyone who remembered the temple wept because the glory of God wasn't there. And Jerusalem was a pile of rubble. And yet all throughout this time, the people had no king. And so they were subjected to the rule of barbaric empires. This is messy, messy history. And what's striking about this list is not the names that Matthew leaves out, but the names that he puts in. There are some bad people here. People that you would not want on your CV and your genealogy. Do you know, I said kind of genealogies, we see that and we get a bit bored. Actually, I think we do, some of us do find it quite interesting. It's like that TV show, Who Do You Think You Are? People like to watch that. I don't, but my wife does. Um, so some of us do find this kind of stuff interesting. But you imagine if I went on to that TV show, Who Do You Think You Are? Um, and I found out somehow that I was related to Joseph Stalin. I don't know, maybe he had a cousin who was from Dundee. Do you know, if, if I was related to a genocidal dictator that was responsible for the deaths of millions, I'm not sure that that's something I'd want everyone to know. I'm not sure that's something we'd want aired. And you can see that on the show sometimes where people realize that one of their ancestors did something horrendous and they're really upset by it. Or apparently, Danny Dyer did one, and apparently he's got royalty in his bloodline, so... I don't know where he stands in line to the throne, hopefully quite a bit away. But there's people in this list that make Stalin look tame and gentle. Let me pick for you one, verse 9. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Do you know what Ahaz was like? You can read about him in 2 Kings 16. He was a greedy, cowardly, malevolent ruler and he was meant to be the king of God's people but do you know what he did he worshipped pagan gods he got the nation to worship pagan gods and he even burnt and sacrificed his own children to these pagan gods now just think of that remember the the promise of God that there would be a line of kings that would reign forever that would bless the nations here we have someone who is in that line and he's seeking to eradicate the people of God the king himself seems to be the one undoing the promise. I mean, there is not a period of time here, except for a very brief moment during Solomon's reign, there is not a period of time where it seemed obvious that God's promises would stand. Imagine living when Israel were slaves in Egypt for 400 years. Imagine telling your children that they are part of this great promise from God to bless the world when they're in chains. Or living during the exile and talking about the, the kingdom of God that's going to come and the great king that's going to save the world and rescue them. 
when the last king they knew was executed and the nation destroyed. You see, this is a list of names that charts a legacy of sin, rebellion, failure, and evil. And yet, through it all, there's one hand guiding everything to make sure that it would lead to that moment in Bethlehem. Messy to us, but to God, well, it's all part of the plan. It's often how God works. Do you see how long this took to happen? God didn't send Jesus straight after Adam and Eve's rebellion. Thousands of years of Israel's history to set Jesus up so that when he did come, we would understand and know. We can't understand how God works, but we can see that he does work. And even at the start of this gospel, it's a great encouragement to the believer because what promises do we have today? Well, we have the same promises they had. The promise that, that Jesus, God, God's great king, gives us the promise that the king will remove all our sins. The promise that we will be forgiven and adopted into his family. The promise that because King Jesus has risen from the grave and ascended into heaven, we will follow too and death will not be the end. The promise that he will come back to judge the world and to fix all that's broken and wrong with us and this world. These great promises, the promise that his kingdom will reign forever, the promise that the gospel will go out to all the nations and that all the nations of the world will hear, the promise that at the end of time there will be an uncountable number of people from every tribe and tongue and nation that will gather around the throne of King Jesus. That's the promises we have. And yet being a Christian is not easy and it's never neat and tidy and life is messy and it's complicated and sometimes there seems no rhyme or reason. Sometimes the church looks small and weak. And for some of us, what we have gone through or currently going through makes us question God's faithfulness. Does he really care about me? Then why? And we don't know the answer. And God doesn't tell us and it's frustrating and it's confusing and it's not the way that we would have done things. But what he does tell us though is that nothing will hinder his promise to us. When we are in the darkest moments of life, even when you don't feel that he could be near, even when you feel just nothing but emptiness, the promise still stands. It's still going to work. The gospel is going to go forward. The king still reigns. How can we be sure? How, does, how do we know he cares? Because Jesus came against overwhelming odds, in times where it looked like it was on a knife's edge, in the face of evil tyrants and suffering people in great darkness, Jesus came. Jesus is our king, and Jesus is the certainty of our blessing. All history is centered around him and about him. Don't you see this as more than just a list of names? This is a list of God's unrelenting commitment to keep his promise. And although the stench of rebellion and sin permeates throughout this, there is something greater that leaps off this list of names. 
grace. And that's the second thing we can learn from this. First thing, nothing can hinder God's promise. The second thing, there's no one too far gone or too obscure for God's grace. God's grace is saturated in this list of names. It's as the Apostle Paul said, where, grace, where sin abounds, grace superabounds. And it's so appropriate because God's grace, his, his undeserved favor, his overwhelming mercy is fully embodied in God's King, the Lord Jesus. You see, Matthew, what he does in this genealogy, this is the shocking thing. He does something that, that no one would have done in a genealogy. He lists the name of women. Now, in a patriarchal society at the time that this was written, genealogies only ever included the names of men. But not here, not for Matthew. Verse 3, we have Tamar, the wife of Judah. Verse 5, Rahab. Also in verse 5, we have Ruth. Verse 6, we see the mention of the wife of Uriah. Finally, in verse 16, we have faithful Mary. Do you know, it wasn't just gender that would omit you from a genealogy at this time. Genealogy was like a resume, and people looked at it to see if you, you, know, you came from good stock, so you would only write the best You know, I'm not going to tell you about my crazy Uncle Bob who always gets drunk at weddings and always embarrasses people, but I'll tell you about that uncle who's become a professional footballer. It's not the case with Jesus' genealogy. See, those women were not just outsiders because of their gender, but both Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth were Gentiles may not seem like a big deal to us today, but again, back then, in a Jewish genealogy, you would not mention Gentile relatives. And to go even further, Tamar and Rahab, do you know what their profession was? Prostitutes. And so do you see what we have here? Gender outsider, racial outsiders, moral outsiders. And that's exactly why Matthew puts them in his list. Because that's the people that God wants. That's the people the king brings in. The obscure, the small, the weak. That is who Jesus is descended from. That's his lineage and that's who he's come to save. Lady Ruth mentioned in verse 5, many of you will know the story from the Old Testament. Ruth, she lost her husband, and to make matters worse, she had to look after a very bitter mother-in-law. What was she like? She lived in poverty, going around the fields after the harvest and picking up the leftover grain to try and feed her and her mother-in-law. In the grand scheme of the universe and human history, and all the people who have existed across the world, who was she? And nobody Yet not to God, not to Jesus. She was faithful to God, and through her faithfulness, she has been brought into the genealogy of the King of Kings. She has been brought into his family. And that is, of course, the offer to all people. If you feel marginalized and on the periphery, then the King of Kings wants to know you. He wants you to be part of his family. Jesus didn't just die to forgive you of your sin. 
He died so that you could be adopted. So you could call God your father. Smallness and obscurity. If you feel isolated. Smallness and obscurity was how he himself was brought into this world. This genealogy, it records the rise and fall of Israel's kingdoms. And where is the royal bloodline when it finally comes to fruition in a carpenter with an expectant wife in Bethlehem in a manger at the back of a cave? That's where all God's promises came to fruition. God loves the outsiders. God loves all people. All the people that are on this list, kings and peasants, male and female, Jew and Gentile, insider, outsider, moral and moral. Jesus is for them all because Jesus is the savior of all. And when he, you come to him, he does not turn you away. He is not ashamed of you. No matter what you've done in your life, if you come to him, He forgives you of your sin. He brings you into his family. And that's what the Bible tells us. Hebrews chapter 2 says he is not ashamed to call you his brother and sister. No matter how beat down by your sin. Just look again at verse 6. It's so important. Look at the way that Matthew phrases that. David was the father of Solomon whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Why is Uriah brought into this? To remind us that the great King David was a wretched sinner. You know, if there was one guy that everyone in Israel wanted to have on their genealogy, it would have been David. But even this great king was a sinful human being in desperate need of a savior. That's who Jesus is for. The best of us are nothing but sinners in need of a savior. God does not treat our sin lightly. It costs the life of his son, Jesus. He does not treat it lightly, but know this, he is not paralyzed by my past sin. So don't stew in a state of unrepentance. Don't become stale with self-loathing or self-pity. Take it to the king. He died for these sins and he's not ashamed to bring you in and say, my brother, my sister, doesn't matter where you're from, really. But what it does matter is where you're going. King of Kings has died so we can be part of this great kingdom. That's the honor of being a Christian. Wow. All that from a genealogy. Ah, but it's more than a genealogy, isn't it? It's a testimony of the overwhelming faithfulness of God. And it's a testimony to the radical grace that brings the outsiders in and saves the worst sinners like King David, like you, like me. What a privilege to be part of that. That is what the history of the world is all about. Don't be mistaken by the messiness of life. There is one king over all of it. And if you're not on his side, there's no security, only uncertainty. There is no promise of salvation, only a promise of judgment. But God's grace is for all. You can be on the right side by turning to him. This is the king. Jesus is the king 
who's been brought in to bless the world. Maybe if you've never been to church before or never read the Bible, why not read Matthew and see what this king is like? Let me pray. Father, thank you for this fulfillment of thousands of years of promise. Father, as we read that, our Old Testament scriptures, we see great examples of faith, but also we see messy situations full of darkness and suffering and pain and how they often cried and wondered how this promise would come to fruition. Father, we're told even the angels long to know how you would do this. And yet they held on to you and how much more should we hold on to you and see your faithfulness and your grace when we have seen how you fulfilled that promise. As we are standing in the middle of the fulfillment of this great legacy, as we worship the king who was born in smallness and obscurity, but was raised from the grave and exalted as the king of kings and the lord of lords, whose fame and glory will spread to the nations as he brings myriads upon myriads of people into his kingdom. Thank you that we are part of his family. That God, you are our father and Jesus, you are not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. Thank you that you are the king who has come to bless the world. In your holy name, amen.